We're all wired for sound. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I ask you this morning, how important is a family tree? Perhaps you have sought to establish your lineage. Maybe you've done some research, gone back, and you can uh, trace through your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors. Uh, Perhaps some of you can go all the way back to to Europe or uh, another part of the world from which uh, your people have come. Uh, it's interesting, um, but not all that practical for, for most of us. Uh, it's more of a, as I say, it's an interesting kind of thing. Uh, but there are those that take great pride in their ancestry, especially if their ancestors are associated with a particular event that has happened. For example... There is the organization of the Daughters of the American Revolution. This organization is composed of women who can trace their lineage to an individual who was instrumental in the war of independence. And so they take great pride in being daughters of the American Revolution. There's also the organization for the daughter of the Mayflower. These are women who are descendants of the pilgrims who sailed upon the Mayflower in 1620, landing on the shores of New England. And so they can boast of their lineage, that they are descendants of those that crossed on the Mayflower. But again, that's more of of a novelty. It was tremendously important in Jewish culture to be able to trace one's ancestry. And it is both tragic and also providential that the modern day Jew is unable to trace their ancestry as they once were able to do. While it might be quite tempting for us as we read the Bible to skip over these genealogies, the reality is that they serve a great purpose. At times like this, I'm reminded of the great truth that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. And so, yes, there are lessons to be learned in the genealogies as well. They teach us some important things. So the genealogy that's given to us in Matthew chapter 1 is both one and the same time a historical narrative and a theological treatise. So it establishes for us a historical narrative of actual events and and peoples, but at the same time, it is more than just a recounting of names. There is a theological construct to Matthew chapter 1 that I am going to unfold for you this morning. The key verse is found in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are two individuals that are noted and brought to our attention. 
That is David and Abraham. And we find out that Jesus is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. But notice also that he's referred to as Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surname. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It is uh, a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is a rendering of the Hebrew word uh, Meshach, which we get the word Messiah from. And so he is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Now, two important things are said in this opening verse. That is, he is the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Son of David had become, by the first century, a title for the Messianic Deliverer who would assume the throne of David in accordance with God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 to 17. And if you were in our brother Eric Herb's Sunday school class, uh, he went over that in a very fine fashion, demonstrating how Jesus is indeed that promised heir of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Thereby inaugurating a kingdom of perfection and righteousness that would last forever, Jesus is that promised king, the son of David. Son of of Abraham also carries a note of promise and fulfillment. Although David, rather than Jesus, could be referred to as the son of Abraham, the focus of this opening sentence and passage is clearly on Jesus himself. The Abrahamic covenant speaks of blessing through Abraham for all the families of the earth. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It is in the Messiah that all families of the earth will be blessed. And it's in keeping with the great theme of Matthew that ends with the Great Commission, Go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So the point of the genealogy is to establish that Jesus is both the promised king and the redeemer. So this morning I'm going to look at two sections. The first emphasizing the fact that he is the promised king, and the second that he is the deliverer. The second half is much more devotional. In fact, I thought about dividing this into two messages, but... uh, It's a long book, and I decided not to do that. Uh, I'm going to pack a lot in this morning. But first of all, we want to note that Jesus is the son of David, and as such, he is the promised coming king. Matthew's point was that Jesus of Nazareth was the legal heir to the throne of Israel. There are ten references in the book of Matthew to the son of David. This compares with three references in Mark, three references in Luke, and no reference in John. So John doesn't make any deal the fact that Jesus is the son of David. Mark mentions it three times. Luke uh, uh, mentions it three times. But Matthew mentions it ten times. And if we would just take a cursory view of these ten occurrences, we would see that they they grow to a crescendo. 
I'm not going to look at all of them, but you just listen. You don't need to be thumbing through all these verses. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, 22. A Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Matthew 20, 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now a passage I would like you to turn to, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. It's the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, verse 9. Triumphal entry, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that borrowed donkey. Matthew 21, 9. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they understood that this was a presentation of Jesus who was the son of David. He was the king of Israel. And if you remember, uh, that is the accusation that Herod puts on the placard at the crucifixion. That uh, the king of Israel. Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? The Pharisees understood exactly what was taking place and they were indignant. They were repulsed. They were put off. They said, don't you hear what these people are saying? They're saying you're the son of David. They're saying you're the king of Israel. They're saying you are this prophesied one from the Old Testament. Verse 16. And said to them, do you not hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees, again, are indignant because of this title that he is the son of David. And... They are asking him, what right does he have to this title? Matthew twenty-two forty-two, saying, and this is Jesus' response. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. They understood that the Messiah was indeed a descendant of David. They understood that he was the, the promised one. The question was, was Jesus that son of David that was being talked about? Well, the Pharisees answered correctly. Verse 42. Who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Verse 23. He, that is Jesus, said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Jesus said, Well, if 
the son of David, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David refer to his descendant as his Lord? Why is his descendant greater than the original king? What makes him unique? Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Because they knew the implication. They understood Jesus' point. That the Messiah was greater than David. The Messiah, in fact, would be the King of kings and Lord of lords. The, the Messiah, in fact, would be the very Son of God. And the Pharisees knew that. And so they didn't answer a word. Because it then became very appropriate, you see, to be saying, Hosanna, the one who's going to be coming. Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. If, indeed, Jesus is that son of David, then it was right that he would be worshipped, for even David worshipped the one who would be coming. Verse 46. And no one is able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him any other question. That, that was the trump card. And the Pharisees knew it. And they said, all we're going to do is get ourselves in trouble if we try to ask any more questions. It's becoming too obvious. And so they stopped. The fact that Jesus is the son of David was a great prophecy that goes back into the Old Testament of the Messiah that would come. And Matthew wants to establish in the genealogy that Jesus is literally the son of David, which he does. The second important reference, and here I'm going to slow down a little bit, in the genealogy is to Jesus being the son of Abraham. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And then these words, and in thee, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham's descendant, all of the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That is a prophecy of the coming Savior who would be a deliverer of all the people of the earth. So the genealogy that is set before us is in fact a theological treatise on the grace of God. It demonstrates among other things how all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in the Messiah. You probably don't spend a lot of time meditating on the genealogies. But if you spend much time at all, you will notice that there is something very unique about this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And the uniqueness is that it contains women. Genealogies didn't contain women. Because the lineage was traced through the male. So we have four women mentioned in this genealogy. Not in great detail, but they are referred to. 
But for the Jews, who put great stress on the genealogies and knew their Old Testament well, these references spoke volumes. What is interested is in the women that it includes when one thinks of the women that it excludes. For example, Abraham is mentioned, and he is a key figure, but yet the wife of Abraham is not mentioned, Sarah. And Sarah is a key figure in the Old Testament. She bears a great responsibility in the promised deliverer that would come, but Sarah's name is not mentioned. If you would think that somebody's name is going to be there, I would think it's going to be Sarah's. But it isn't. And so we want to look at the four names that are mentioned and the grace that they represent. The first name is Tamar. Matthew 1, 3. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerubbabel Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron and to Hezron Ram. Now, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. And in order to tell this story, I think I'm just going to read it. So now we're going to learn a little bit about this Tamar, who she is, what she did. Genesis 38, verse 6. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So, he's evil, God slayed him, he dies. Tamar is now without a husband. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, And raise up offspring for your brother. Two things I want to point out here. First of all, there is in the Old Testament which was known as a Leverite marriage. A Leverite marriage was a duty or responsibility that if uh, a person died, then the brother of the deceased, the next in kin, would marry that widow in order to raise up offspring. And so that became... Onan's responsibility. Notice clearly, verse 8, to raise up offspring for your brother, so that she would have children. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. What was displeasing is the fact that he was not going to fulfill the Leverite marriage. The fact that he was selfish and was unwilling to foster a child that would be not a part of his inheritance, but a part of his brother's inheritance. So he was unwilling to father a child by her. Well, that displeased God. Because he violated God's law. And so... He's killed. 
Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Selah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah. Uh, excuse me, down to verse 13. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, sat in the gateway of Enium, which is on the road to Timnah, where she saw that Sheila had grown up and had not been given to him as his wife. So Judah did not follow through on his word. There was one son left, but he didn't give Timnah to him in marriage because he's afraid that something's going to happen to him. So she remains a widow. So now she takes things in her own hands. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, she thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into, uh, into me? About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out here to be burned to death. Verse 25. And she was brought out. She went a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I couldn't give her my son Selah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time, gave, time came for her to give birth, there were born twins in her womb. That is the story behind Tamar, who our text simply says that Tamar bore by Judah. It's her father-in-law. But notice how God's purpose is fulfilled that she would have children and humanly speaking that nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing in order for this woman to be bearing children as the law required, as the law taught. And yet, children are born to her of her family line. The second woman that is referred to is quite interesting. That's Rahab. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. And to Solomon was born Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab had two strikes against her. First strike was that she was a Gentile. The second strike was that she was a prostitute. Rahab was consistently referred to as a prostitute throughout the book of Joshua. That clung to her. She never rid herself of that reputation. Just listen. Joshua 2.1 then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, 
So if you remember, spies were sent out of Israel uh, to the city of Jericho. And they come to the house of Rahab to hide there. It was a great hiding place because she was a prostitute. So it wasn't unusual to think of strange men going and being in her house. It wouldn't raise any suspicion. Joshua 6.17 And the city shall be under the ban, and all it is in its belongings are to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers when she went out. So she asks that her life be spared because she believed that the city of Jericho was going to fall. She believed in God. So they said, tie a scarlet string in the window and and we will preserve you and uh, you will not die. Matthew, uh, Joshua 6.25. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Thus ends the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua. What happened to Rahab? What happens to this harlot who now lives in the land of Israel? She's transformed. She's made a new creature. She has believed in God. She's a different person. And we find out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, that she is the mother to Boaz, who is the husband to Ruth. This harlot has been welcomed into the nation of Israel. She's experienced grace. And she is incorporated into the godly line and lineage of Jesus. And I said to you, there are two issues with Rahab. One was that she was a harlot. The second was that she was a Gentile. But the Bible makes an example of Rahab. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 87. I know we're jumping around a lot this morning. Bear with me. Psalm 87. Psalm 87. Starting with verse 3. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. This is talking about the heavenly city. This is talking about the New Jerusalem. This is talking about Zion. This is talking about the dwelling place of God and His people. Now notice verse 4. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. So there are going to be people of Babylon who know God. There are people in the Babylonian captivity who are saved as a result of Israel going into captivity. Rahab knows me. Babylon knows me. Now notice this. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. 
These are major nations that fight against Israel. And he says, they, these people know me. People like Rahab, people from Babylon, people from Philistia, people from Tyre, people from Ethiopia. The people that you would not expect. Now notice these next words, for they are powerful. This one was born there. They are going to be treated like natural citizens. They are going to be just like they were born in the city of Zion. They're going to be like the true Jew. They are going to be accepted fully. Here is a message of God's redeeming work in the Old Testament of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He will have a remnant. And they are going to be counted as though they were born there. Rahab is treated as a Jewish heiress. And she is honored in the line and lineage of Jesus. She's there to make a point. She's not there to trace back to David that's through her husband, Judah. No, that's not the point. She is there to make a statement about being a son of Abraham. About being a part of that Abrahamic covenant. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God is already working out that redemptive history, even in the Old Testament. So, Rahab becomes a great symbol of faith. Just as Abraham is welcomed into the family of God, so are you. And so am I. We take it for granted this morning, but we're Gentiles. But in the sight of God, there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither bond nor free. But we are all the people of God. Matthew is the gospel that brings that truth home powerfully. For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. He said, Don't boast because you are physical descendants of Abraham, because God can make descendants of Abraham from stones. It's not just about being a physical descendant. It's about believing in the living and true God. Rahab becomes the symbol of that truth. It's all about knowing me. And if you know me, you become a part. You are accepted. We are, in the New Testament, the Israel of God. Romans, we are grafted in. We become a part of that lineage. The third woman is Ruth. Ruth, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And so Obed, Jesse, and of course Jesse is going to become David. Ruth. I hope you know these Old Testament stories, because they'll mean so much more to you if you do. 
But Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. Moabites, if you remember, are the sons of Moab. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, if you remember, are descendants of uh, Lot through his daughters. But they were wicked. They were wicked. Ruth marries a son of Naomi when they travel into the land of Moab because there's famine in Israel. Ruth's husband dies. Naomi decides to return to the land of Israel. And Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. And there's this great verse in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 that says this. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Where I will be buried, thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you and me. So, Naomi, so Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, your God will be my God. And she worships the living and true God. If you know the story of Ruth, how she meets Boaz, and Boaz protects her, takes care of her, and makes her his wife. And she becomes the mother of To Obed. I want you to see this, so please turn with me again. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Because this is a very striking verse. It's, it's, It's good to underline it and maybe put Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 next to it. Because it's striking. And you see, the people to whom this book is written, they would have picked up on this right away. I mean, they know these stories inside and out. They follow these genealogies. They, they would be able to do what I'm doing for you this morning. I'm not conjuring up these, these applications. That's what they're here for. Notice Jeremiah 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite, remember she's a Moabite, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now these words, none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. The prevailing position was, if you were a Moabite, You had nothing to do with God. And your descendants were going to be banned for ten generations because of your wickedness and the fact you will have nothing to do with God. People, here is grace. Here is a Moabite woman who put her trust in God. Ten generations banned. The first generation, her child, is accepted by God. And he's the grandfather of David. That's grace. 
That's grace to the nations. That's the promised Messiah who's coming to deliver a sinful people. Jesus is that son of David. Jesus is that son of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. The fourth example. The fourth example. Verse 6. Matthew 1, verse 6. It's Bathsheba. As soon as I have tears in my eyes and I can't read. But I'll get there. <clears throat> Jesse was the father of uh, David the king. Was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba. Notice how she has been identified as the right wife of Uriah. Now remember, the whole point of this is that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. So why bring Uriah into this? Why muddy the waters? Why his name? Jesus isn't descended from Uriah. He's descended from David, which the text says. But it gives us this caveat that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Why in the world would it say that in a genealogy? Only to draw our attention to who Bathsheba really was. Encapsulated in that simple little statement is the whole story of Bathsheba. And I hope you know the story of David and Bathsheba. It's the story of David who one day is out on the top of the, the palace and looks down and sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. He lusts after that beautiful woman and has her brought to the palace and he commits adultery with her. As a result of the adultery, she becomes pregnant. So, David has to cover up his adultery. And so, uh, her husband, Uriah, is out fighting a battle in the military. So, David has him summoned home. He comes home, and David hopes that he's going to lie with his wife. And then, she'll, he'll think that the child is, is his, as opposed to David's. And he will cover his tracks. Well, Uriah doesn't think it's right for him to be laying with his wife when all the other people are engaged in this war and, and having to go through hardship and difficulty. So the plan backfires because he never has a sexual relationship with his wife. So now David has to come up with plan B. And so David's next plan is to have Uriah killed, but he's got to make it look like an accident. So David tells the commander of the army, put him up in the front, go next to the wall, Make sure that he dies in battle. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. Then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. It was sinful. It was wrong. It was an act of both murder and adultery. And as a result, that child dies. David prays for that child, but 
that child dies. But in the grace of God, she has another child by David. And this child is Solomon. And he is the lineage through which Jesus is traced. Through this woman who had been taken advantage of, uh, she didn't seek that relationship with David. Being a kingdom, she really didn't have any recourse. When the king wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, what could the citizenry do about it? She was abused. She was used. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, comes through that line. Because she is healed. She is ministered to. These women are living examples of what the Savior is going to mean. What the Savior is going to accomplish. It is a theological treatise on grace. That's why I say to you, the, the genealogy serves two purposes. Historical ancestry, but yet a theological treatise on grace. God's, excuse me, the genealogy of Jesus demonstrates God's acceptance, God's acceptance and transformation of the sinner. It is living proof of the redemptive activity of God. It is fitting for Jesus, who is both king and savior of the world, to have these people in his lineage. Have you ever been ashamed of one of your relatives? Is there a black sheep in your family that you really don't want to be associated with? You cringe if somebody finds out that they're your aunt, your uncle, or someone like that. You, you want to distance yourself from them. Maybe if you do your family tree, you might find out that you're long lost. So-and-so is a murderer or an axe killer. Who knows? But have there been people that you didn't want to associate with? How about Christians? Have there ever been any Christians you didn't want to associate with? You're embarrassed by their behaviors, their activities, maybe their sin. Maybe they name the name of Christ, but they're living a pretty raunchy life and, and you don't really want to be identified with them. I remember years and years ago, when I was in college, one of my part-time jobs was I worked at Hughes and Hatcher. And uh, I worked real hard at having a testimony at Hughes and Hatcher. And in fact, I did, in fact, lead one of my co-workers to the Lord. And one day I, I was talking and they were asking me about my church. And uh, so I, I, I told them, and at that time uh, it was uh, the Grace Bible Fellowship Church in, in Reading and... Uh, they, this guy said to me, oh, I used to go there, and he was the wanchiest guy. Filthy jokes, the stuff that would come out of his mouth. He said, I used to go there. And I said, no, 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 no. You didn't go there. 
I said, I'm, I'm talking about the Reading Bible Fellowship Church. He said, yeah, I used to go. No, 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 no. I'm talking about on Hampton Boulevard. Yeah, I used to go there. And, you know, he's got, sure enough, this guy used to go there, which bothered the bejeebies out of me. Because now, all of a sudden, he's associated with me. And my testimony. And I was ashamed of him. I didn't want to be identified with him. Are there Christians you don't want to be identified with? Maybe they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but maybe they're Pentecostal. Maybe they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and maybe they're a little weird about this or that. Who knows? But are there people of God you don't want to be associated with? One of the most striking verses in the entire scripture to me is in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed of me. Jesus is not ashamed of Rahab. Tamar, Ruth, or Bathsheba. He's glad to own them as part of his family. Why? Because the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is the one who makes us holy. And we are a part of his family because he makes us holy. This is pictured for us historically in which, Jesus, which, in which God made sinners holy and a part of his family. That is the opening to the book of Matthew for a Savior who is coming to make us holy and part of his family. It's there. It's in chapter 1. And in all places of genealogy. Let's pray.